Pastor Harry Williams is with us. He's a pastor from Allen Temple Baptist Church down here in East Oakland, that, that massive church down there. He's authored several books, including the, his most popular one, Straight Out of East Oakland, and he does amazing community work here in Oakland, including working with sex traffic youth. So he's with us. We're blessed to have him, and he'll be sharing with us today. And before he does, we'll ask the scripture reader to come up and read the scripture for him. Okay, we'll be reading Matthew 25, 31 through 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and gave you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcomed you, or naked and clothed you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Would you pray with me, please? Father God, in the name of Jesus, we worship you and we give your name glory. Now, Lord, as we prepare to go into your word, I pray that you would speak to every soul. I pray that you'd speak to me. And I pray, O oh God, that only your words would be heard and that you would hide me behind the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, before I begin, I just want to wish all of the fathers happy Father's Day. Whether you're a father or you act in the role of a father to somebody, I just want to say happy Father's Day to you. I want to say good morning, and I want to just also say what a blessing it is to be able to be with you today. I'm really thankful to your pastor, Pastor Albert, in his absence, a great man of God, for the opportunity to share from God's word. It was the time of the great Passover feast. Jerusalem's population swelled to several times its usual size. Pilgrims made the trek over valley and mountain to enter into the city of David. Their chests swelled with nationalistic and religious fervor. Among the great hordes here to celebrate the Passover is a young rabbi accompanied by 12 disciples. As a murmur begins to surge through the crowd, whispers about this famed teacher from Nazareth. They said that he had healed the sick and that he had raised the dead. 
Some said that he was a great sage, a mystic, a teacher whose words and sayings leave the great theologians stumbling and stuttering in their wake. Yes, the multitudes called him a great prophet. But the barefoot men, some literate, some illiterate, some radical, some fishermen, the ones who followed him day in and day out, believe that this man is somebody entirely different. Country bumpkins from the Netherlands, from the Hinderlands, they marvel as they walk through the streets of Jerusalem. As they come to the great temple with its great marble columns and its grand architecture, they ask in awe in Matthew 24, 2, do you see these things? Jesus responds that one day the great temple will be destroyed. Later beyond earshot of the multitude, some unnamed person asks, tell us. When will this happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Important words. You see, for these men, Jesus is more than a great teacher, a miracle worker, or a social activist. Earlier in this book, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 15, Jesus asked, Who do you say that I am? And in verse 6, Simon Peter answers, You are the Messiah, the Son of of the living God. And as they sit on the mountainside, they look at Jesus' lips moving and they hear hope speaking. You see, the Israelis at this time were subjects, they were slaves, they were a vassal state under the boot heel of the Roman Empire. Their properties could be seized at a whim, they were forced to pay exorbitant taxes. Even their worship was subject to the pleasure and whims of the Roman Empire. For years, the Jewish people had awaited a Messiah, a Savior who could liberate God's chosen people from that level of domination. They were looking for the Son of Man who would set up God's kingdom upon the earth. After three years of living shoulder to shoulder with Jesus, his disciples were assured that he was the promised one. The one who would come at the end of the age to set up the new world. And so here Jesus begins a multi-part sermon on the end of the world complete with parabolic illustrations. He makes one point over and over and over again and it is this. It is so easy to get caught up in day-to-day life that one neglects the teachings of Jesus. Jesus says that his return to earth will leave many shocked surprised, and unready. He spends an entire chapter and a half making this point over and over again. And finally, he says in Matthew twenty-two forty-four, so you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. Or rhetorical genius that he was. Jesus says, set up the backstory for what is about to happen next. And in one of the most powerful scriptures in the Bible, he goes on to describe the great day of judgment. There are some things that stretch the boundaries of imagination. What would it look like for the Son of Man to return from heaven, as it were, accompanied by all of the angels of heaven? Can you imagine the sky filled with millions of glowing winged creatures racing toward the streets of Tokyo, Los Angeles, and New York City? Here, Jesus invites us to use our imaginations like film screens as we anxiously await his return to earth. Can you picture his brilliance and glory filling the sky? 
I can see people in my mind trembling, trying to hide their faces, their knees shaking with fear before Almighty God. And this is Judgment Day. Here Jesus uses two interesting metaphors to describe all of humanity. He divides us into two categories, sheep and goats. As I was meditating on this passage, I I had to ask myself why this great and powerful being would have to personally separate us into two categories, sheep and goats. A while ago, I took a trip past farm country in Salinas. And when I looked out of the window of the bus, I saw a field filled with sheep and goats. Even from a distance, I could tell the sheep from the goats. Like that Salinas farmer, the Son of Man has allowed the sheep and the goats to live together, but one day they shall be separated. Imagine the Son of Man looking in your direction, pointing at you, calling your name, before all of humanity, a great smile on his face, his radiant face, as he declares, I have a reward for you, prepared since the beginning of the world. Come, you, come on, come on, you, 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 come on, come on. Come sit here by my right side. Sit here, right next to me. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you came and looked after me. I was in prison. I was in San Quentin, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger, homeless, and invite you to come live with us? When did we see you naked, without good shoes in your feet, needing clothes, and took you down to pay less and bought you something? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Why would Jesus be so concerned about how you and I deal with the impoverished, the disenfranchised, and the poor? The people who languish in the living hell under our freeways. The people who live in the Acorn Projects in Campbell Village down in deep East Oakland. Why would God be so concerned about how we deal with people who have so little? Why would he be so concerned as to pronounce such extreme rewards and punishment using our treatment of the economically deprived as a measuring stick? I believe this is the reason. In the first century A.D., Jesus lived in a world of extreme poverty. As a teenager, he might have wiped the tears from the eyes of a widowed mother having to make the choice between starvation and prostitution. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus told a parable about a man who fell into debt and not only got thrown into prison for it, but was dealt with there by professional tormentors. Such dealings were probably a reality in Jesus' day. When Jesus walked the earth, he might have known what it was to have hungry, barefoot children tugging at the hem of his garment, not for healing, but for bread. And as the scripture records about Jesus time and time and time again, Jesus could never look 
at the suffering of human beings without being moved with compassion. And so on Judgment Day, the risen Christ will look upon the righteous, those who have saw the hunger, those who have saw the need, those who are moved with compassion by the people they saw on the street in their world who had so little. He will look at those who fought and sacrificed, those who gave so much to make the world better for those who had so little. And the king will say, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters, you did for me. How closely is Jesus looking at the way that you treat the poor in this world? According to the scripture, pretty closely. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty and give you something to drink? Let's keep it real. If Jesus walked in here today, tapped you on the shoulder and said, I'm hungry. Can you buy me a meal? Which one of us in this room wouldn't empty out our pockets to get him a steak smothered in onions and a loaded baked potato? We'd be sitting next to Jesus at the restaurant talking about, Lord, you want a glass of Pepsi with that? We'd be dabbing at the corners of his lips with a linen napkin. The thing is, according to this scripture, we probably walk past or drive past Jesus all of the time. The thing is, we just don't recognize him. A friend of mine worked at a community theater when she was in college. A theater company came there to to give a presentation, a play about Jesus Christ. The auditorium was packed. At intermission, a, a sea of patrons and minks and suits made their way to the front of the building for a breath of fresh air. Most of the conversation centered around how authentic and true to the word the play had been thus far. A few of the theater goers brushed away tears as they spoke in hushed tones about how the Savior had been portrayed in the presentation. In the middle of their conversations, a thin man with a a light blue blanket wrapped around his shoulders approached them with his hand out. Spare change? Spare change, please? Can somebody help me? He begged. There were crumbs and flecks of soda dribbling down his beard. Mucus crusted at the corners of his eyes. He had shower clogs on his feet, even though it was cold outside. A black garbage bag, presumably filled with all of his earthly possessions, dangled from his soiled right hand. The theater goers recoiled in horror, afraid even to touch him. They shook their heads and they shooed him away like he was an old stray dog. Soon enough, the lights flashed, signaling that the play was about to start again. The Christians rushed back to their seats, ready to be enthralled once more by the exploits of the Jesus that they had come to love so much. A strange thing happened. The homeless man with the blue blanket wrapped around his shoulders wandered on stage. He looked lost. The theater goers were curious. How had this man even got in the building? What was he doing? He was ruining everything. You can imagine their shock when the homeless man with the black garbage bag dangling from his hand wandered up to the microphone and said, Good evening, my name is Jesus. Why would Jesus have used such vivid imagery to get believers to take up the cause of the poor and the struggling? 
The answer can be found if you look in Proverbs 19.4. Wealth attracts many friends, but even the closest friend of the poor person deserts them. I learned the truth of this when I was a little boy. My parents were not rich by any stretch of the imagination. My father worked as an engineer for the federal government, and my mother was a public high school teacher. When I entered the third grade, they enrolled me in the Ranny School. Now, the Ranny School was an exclusive private school in New Jersey. The tuition, even back in those days, was astronomical. I went to school with some of the richest, most affluent kids from households in the state of New Jersey. And at Ranny, I learned many lessons, some of which were in school books and some which weren't. Some of the ones that weren't came from my teachers who gave us certain gestures and looks. The teachers and staff worshipped the richest kids in the school. Even the other kids would whisper, you know that so-and-so's son? You know that so-and-so's daughter? You know they own this and that? You know they know so-and-so and so-and-so? Now these kids, these special kids, these rich kids, weren't always the best students. Some, they could be smart, they could be dumb, but they were treated like English royalty. Everybody wanted to be their friend. Even though we were young and we hardly knew the difference between a $10 bill and a $100 bill, we knew that there was something special about people who had great wealth as opposed to the rest of us. From the cradle, somehow along the way, we'd been taught to reverence and have awe for the wealthy and to look down on people who didn't have a lot. You might have seen Glide Memorial Church in San Francisco on television at one time or another. Each year, Glide serves literally one million meals to struggling people in the Tenderloin. On a nice day, you might see people ravaged by the Great Recession lined up from one corner to the other and then across the street. I teach Bible study at Glide every Tuesday evening, and I preach there every once in a while. I'm going to preach there next month. But from 2005 to 2010, I worked at Glide every day as a case manager. I work largely with homeless people. And I'll never forget a gentleman who came into my office one day seeking housing. He said, when you lose your place to live, the first thing that goes away is your sense of humanity. He told me, when you're homeless, people don't look you in the eye. It's like you become invisible to them. This invisibility apparently must be an abomination to God. God's wrath burns hot not only against those who would shun the poor, but the so-called religious people who have not made a conscious effort to extend their hands to the poor and the suffering in this world. For the Son of Man says in Matthew 25, 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not come look after me. Then they will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or, or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or, or sick and in prison and didn't help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. God is so angry at those who have allowed the poor, the homeless, the sick, and the imprisoned to become invisible that in the end, 
He sends them to a place prepared for the devil and his angels. When you marinate on that for a moment, you have to realize that this is more serious than feeling good about yourself because you bought a copy of the street news or tossed a couple of quarters at a homeless person. Need I mention to you that every 3.6 seconds, somebody in the world dies of hunger. I won't even discuss that 15 million of the world's children will die this year because of hunger. Let's bring that picture a little bit closer to home. Did you know that Oakland, California in 2012 is full of hungry people? The Alameda County Food Bank says that one out of every three children in Alameda County, where you are seated right now, faces the threat of hunger every single day. One out of every three children right where you're sitting today. I struck up a conversation with a man on the street corner, not far from where my home church is located at 85th and International. He's a senior citizen with a gray beard and laughing eyes. One day I offered to buy him a sandwich. I said, are you hungry? He looked around at, at the lost men who frequented that corner around him. And with a wave of his hand, he said, we're always hungry, Rev. What is God calling upon you to do? Aura Lee Brown is a, a member of the Harmony Missionary Baptist Church here in Oakland. In 1987, she walked into a store in East Oakland and found herself approached by a little girl. The little girl said, Miss, my family is hungry. Would you buy us some food? The real estate broker thought to herself that the little girl was scamming, trying to get some free goodies. She went along with it. She asked the little girl, what kind of food do you want? The child's response piqued her interest. You see, you would expect a child to ask for cookies and candy and now later, that kind of thing, soda. Instead, the child asked for sliced meats and things that you could make a meal out of. The little girl was telling the truth. She was really trying to feed her family. Concerned, Miss Lee Brown walked into a nearby school that next day, and she went looking for that little girl thinking that she probably attended that school. She never saw that little girl again. But when Miss Brown saw the suffering that was around her, the want, the deprivation that she saw that those little East Oakland kids were, were fighting with in their quest to get an education, she walked into a classroom, this Christian person goes to a church not too far away from here, and she made a promise to those children. She said, if you finish elementary school, if you finish junior high school, if you go to high school and you graduate, somehow I will financially help you to get into college so you can change your life. She came true to her word. One day, if you turn on the television, Miss Lee Brown from East Oakland was sitting on Oprah Winfrey's couch telling the whole planet Earth. One person with a vision was able to change the world for a lot of people. What is God calling upon you to do? Where do you go from here? In the film The Matrix, Keanu Reeves plays the part of a computer programmer named Neo. A dreamlike sequence sets the tone of the whole three-part epic. Neo is summoned into the presence of a golly-like figure named Morpheus, played by Lawrence Fishburne. Morpheus is the leader of a fugitive band of humans who were hunted by machine-like robots which have taken over the whole world. Morpheus believes that Neo is a, a hero endowed with special abilities that can save humanity from annihilation. In their first meeting, 
the bald-headed Morpheus, resplendent in a long white trench coat and sunglasses, stretches out both hands. In each of his palms, there is a, a pill. He looks at a confused Neo and he's, he makes this offer. He says, you can take the blue pill. And the story ends. You wake up in your bed tomorrow and make of this what you will. But if you take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. This morning, will you take the blue pill or the red pill? If you take the blue pill, you will walk out of this building and just let this sermon float away into the outer ether. If you take the red pill, this is the beginning of a journey for you. This is the beginning of you asking God, Lord, what do you want me to do with the rest of my life? Somebody is sitting here saying, what you're saying doesn't jive. It doesn't mesh with what I've always heard mentioned from Scripture. There are certain traditional beliefs that have been taught to me since I was a, a child. And what you're saying really doesn't mesh with that. What am I going to do with this sermon? I know exactly what you mean. I was raised in a church that ignored Matthew 25. I went to a church that ignored the fact that when Jesus was asked to describe the essence of his true faith, he told the story of the Good Samaritan who tended to the literal needs of a mugging victim. I grew up in a church where the pastor never preached from the book of Amos. I grew up in a church where the pastor never read Isaiah 58, 6 to us. Is this not the kind of fasting that I have chosen to loose the bonds and the chains of injustice, and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when, when you see the naked to clothe them and not turn away from your own flesh and blood? In 1970, a riot shook the small seaside resort community that I grew up in, Asbury Park, New Jersey. A fiery Three-day spasm of grief, blood, and rage left much of the city in cinders and ash. One of my earliest memories is watching National Guard troops race toward the inner city of our town. What it burned was the shopping district in the impoverished west side. The west side where unemployment was probably always high in the double digits. Where several families might live squeezed together in tenements or vermin-infested housing projects. The west side where infant mortality was high and opportunity was low. In the aftermath, the city pastors took to the streets to find out what had led to this cataclysm. I should say many of the city's pastors went to the streets of the inner city to find the source of the suffering and anguish. Our pastor didn't go. His theology offered neither questions nor answers regarding the hunger the imprisonment, or the suffering. There was no room for Matthew 25 in his lexicon. This is not an easy passage of scripture. The passage calls for one to leave his or her comfort zone, to sacrifice from the abundance of one's blessings, in many cases to travel from deep East Oakland to the back streets of Bombay. If you were to accept Matthew 25 as truth, then you are challenged to do whatever you can Whatever is necessary to bridge the gap between yourself and those who languish in the poverty, loneliness, and imprisonment. Human trafficking is a great crisis here in Oakland. In fact, the first time that I ever became aware that there was a place on the map called Oakland 
was in conjunction with human trafficking because in 1970-71, a movie came out called The Mac. And The Mac was shown all over the world. It was filmed here in Oakland. And it was about a young man who returns from prison and becomes involved in the flesh trade. MSNBC, CNN, and other media outlets have come to Oakland to do exposés about the crisis of commercial sexual exploitation that exists here. Now, what is human trafficking exists all over the world? What is unique about Oakland's problem? And it's this. It is the fact that many of the people that are, are enmeshed in human trafficking here in Oakland are children. Not far from where you're sitting this morning, there are little girls, some as young as 10 years old, standing out on the street corners in plain view. Recently, Tamerlan Drummond of the Oakland Tribune wrote that one need only take a drive down International Boulevard to see the sex trafficking of young girls remains a thriving business boldly practiced in full view. It's ironic that prostitution rages in an area, she writes, that probably has more churches per square mile than most places. Ms. Drummond continues to write, what must parishioners think on the way to worship when they pass these lost souls no older than their granddaughters. Do they not see? Church family, these are slaves. When you leave this building, you might see them standing on the corner in short skirts and think to yourself, oh, they're just fast and promiscuous. The fact is that these girls are slaves. They're under the control and domination of vicious pimps who hide in the shadows. Another aspect of the trade is something called guerrilla pimping. Happens in Oakland. Predators snatch a young girl on her way to school, throw her in the trunk of a car, and force her onto what is known as the track. Somebody said, Rev, that's not something we need to know about. Really? Why not? What I'm talking about isn't something that happens in some rural village somewhere on the other side of the world. This is a reality for people who live three blocks away from where you're sitting right now. I had a ministry at the Allen Temple Baptist Church called the Streets Disciples. Once a month, we have a special service. We had it last night for women who are trafficked, abused, or abandoned. Last night, we had a catered soul food dinner from my favorite spot, Holiday Fish, and we fed 57 women. We had a professional manicurist come out to, to do the nails for the women. One of our ministers delivered a message. We had a prayer with those sisters. Those who desired could take showers in the church. We discussed recovery options with people. People who had been beat up, bruised. Some who were walking there with black eyes. You could hear them laughing and singing out on the street. Not everybody who comes to serve in that ministry comes from our church. Not everybody who comes to help us comes from East Oakland or Oakland at all. Some are affluent people who come from other cities because they're moved with compassion. They have found that a crisis exists in Oakland, and they want to be found on God's side, serving the least of these. When I first came to Oakland, I found myself shocked by the poverty and violence and the despair. And as an evangelist, I sought a way to help young kids. And I realized when I went out to the street corners to ask them, why are y'all slanging dope? Why are y'all toting guns? 
Why does every time I come out of the house, I, I see shrines where somebody else got blasted? I wanted to know why this happened. And they told me some answers. And I wanted to really help these young people. And I realized one thing. They didn't open many Bibles. They weren't coming to church. But they all loved two things. They loved hip-hop music. And they read what we call urban fiction. And so 2008, the Lord gave me a book called Straight Out of East Oakland. Some of y'all are hip-hop fans know that there was a rap record called Straight Out of Compton. And I took that idea and I flipped it into a book and I called it Straight Out of East Oakland. And then the Lord gave me another book called Straight Out of East Oakland 2, Trapped on the Track, that came out last year. And I wrote these books because I said many church people of goodwill don't even realize what's happening outside. One day, God is going to ask us what we did about the suffering that existed a few feet away from our front door. May I ask you this question? Who do you know who is suffering personally in your world? How have you served as Jesus, hands and feet, in their world? My mother was a great cook. And every Saturday night, our our house was filled with a set of collard greens, fried chicken, and biscuits. Looking back, we must have been torturing the neighbors. My mother cooked on Saturday night because we spent most of Sunday in church. And this way, the only thing she had to do, that was before they had the microwave, was pop it in the oven, warm it up, and we could come home and chow down. Now, my mother and I never went to church alone. My mother, in fact, purchased a big van so she could bring neighbors and children from the community to church with us. Often, we didn't come home alone either. My mother invited jobless people, single moms with children who were struggling to make ends meet to come home to share that feast with us. She never talked much about it. That was just kind of an extension of what she did as a Christian. I remember my mother helping many, many people in need. And when her birthday came around, people wrote on my Facebook page that I hadn't talked to in years. And they said, I came to know Jesus when I was little because your mother went out of her way as a believer to bring us to the church and to talk to us about Jesus Christ. She did more than talk. She lived it. In fact, my mother was the type of person who didn't wait for folk in distress to come to her. She went looking for them. She created ministry to help. Who in your world is struggling, and how are you helping the least of these? How can you help? In 2012, the entire world holds its collective breath as Greece, Spain, and Portugal totter on the brink of economic collapse. I heard one man say on the news the other day, if the euro goes, Europe goes. 22% of our nation's exports go to those nations. We are already witnessing times in our nation that I never thought that I would see. And we may not have seen the end of it. If we are to be Christ to this world, we have to take God's word seriously. We're going to have to get serious about what it means to sacrifice for the least of these. The coming days in America are going to force us to take Jesus' words a bit more seriously. Somebody is saying, Rev, I have nothing to give. Years ago, I was walking through Central Park in New York City when a panhandler took a crumpled up McDonald's cup. He he pointed it out at me. He shook it and said, spare change, spare change. I looked at the nickels and pennies in the cup and I said, man, I'm broke too. I probably wasn't, but I got tired of people approaching me about money. I looked at him and I said, you need to break me or something. 
To my amazement, the man turned the cup upside down. The coins fell into his palm. With a weary smile, he extended his hand full of change. I didn't take the money that day, but I learned something. We all have something to give. Somebody is saying, if this is so, what do I do next? Let me offer just a few suggestions. Number one, search out the matter. The Internet brings the library of the world to your fingertips. Get on a computer, look on your phone after the service, and Google hunger in Alameda County. Read, study, talk to people. Read about the mass incarceration crisis that is racking Oakland. The incarceration process and crisis is so extreme in Alameda County that other folk come here from other parts of the United States to study us. Number two, do a Bible study on how poverty and injustice were facts and how they were faced in both the Old and New Testament. Study what the Bible says about it. Number three, make these words your daily prayer. Lord, help me to close the gap between myself and those who have so much less than what you have given me. Lastly, start with one person. You're right, you can't save the world, but who can you save? Grab somebody in this room and say, hey, dinner's on me today. Hang out with me and my family and my buddies. Look at some neighbor with children who who don't have anybody to help them and say, you know what, I can't save the world, but I can do something for you. Look for the one person that you can't help. Years ago, I was living in New York City and facing a hard time. Now, if you went to my church, you wouldn't be able, have been able to look at me and know that. I always came to church dressed pretty nicely and never mentioned it to anybody. One day, a man walked into church that I, that I didn't know. He sat next to me. He was late. I shared my Bible with him. And when the preacher announced the text, he kind of grabbed the Bible. And he looked down at the Bible. He didn't really look at the preacher. At the end of the service, he handed me back the Bible and he said, There's a message from God for you in the Bible. I smiled and I shook his hand. About 10 minutes later, I was standing on the subway platform when I remembered his words. I opened up the Bible. I thumbed through it. And somewhere in the middle of that Bible, I found the message that he was referring to. This total stranger had left a $10 bill in my Bible. I had never seen him before. I never saw him again. On Judgment Day, the chances are great that I will meet him again. For the Bible says in Matthew 25, 46, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Finally, you might be here today and you're smiling on the outside, but you're struggling on the inside. The recession has wiped away your 401k. Your unemployment benefits have been depleted. You had to scrape together pennies to buy gas this week, or perhaps you don't even have a car anymore. The ambassador of the Bay, rapper E-40, once said, Right now it's feast or famine, either you're eating or you're starving. Houses upside down, foreclosures, government auctions and bargains. It's nasty out there and it's bad, it's awful, it's one big mess. They came the day before yesterday, they picked up my car. He got repossessed. Let go and let God fight your battles. All you have to do is believe and have the faith of the mustard seed. 
If you ain't got no money, if you ain't got no gas, if you're in a relationship that looks like it will not last, let go and let God fight your battles. Know this, God loves you. God cares about you. The psalmist says in Psalm 27, 1, I will lift up mine eyes into the hills from whence cometh my help, my help cometh from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Friends, God loves you. He's got a plan for your life. Trust in Jesus. He will see you through. I am a living witness. At this time, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Today, you might be saying, Preacher, you were talking to me this morning. I love God. And I want his passion for the poor and disenfranchised to burn in my heart the same way it burned in Jesus' heart. If that's you today, would you raise your hand? Preacher, I I want the passion that God had for those who had so little to burn in my heart. You might be here this morning and you might be saying, Preacher, I know that one day I'm going to have to face God on Judgment Day. But I'm just not ready. I know I'm not ready. I don't have a relationship with him. I come to church, but outside of this place, I really don't have a relationship with him. My faith doesn't characterize my life. Folk in my neighborhood, my family, they they don't know me as a Christian because that's not really who I am. You don't really have first place in my life. But I want a deeper connection with you, God. I want to be saved and I want to be renewed. I want to be on fire for you. If that's you and you're here today, would you raise your hand so that we might see it? Amen. I see that hand. I see that hand. I see that hand. Amen. Lastly, you might be struggling today. Your financial situation has caused you to spend some sleepless nights. If you were honest enough this morning, you'd say before God and your church family that you're struggling and you need help. Would you raise your hand that we might pray with you? Amen. I see that hand. I see that hand. Amen. 